There's a story told among rabbis that goes something like this. After finishing work on each of the first five days, the Bible states that God saw it and called it good. But God is not reported to have commanded or commented on the goodness of what was created on the sixth day. That's the day that human beings were made. What conclusion can you draw from that, asked the rabbi. Well, someone volunteered and said, we can conclude that humans are not good. Possibly, nodded the rabbi, but that's not a likely explanation. He then went on to explain that the Hebrew word translated as good in Genesis is the word tov, which is better translated as complete. That is why, the rabbi contended, God did not declare the human person to be tov, to be complete. Human beings are created incomplete. It is our life's vocation to collaborate with our creator in fulfilling the Christ potential in each of us. It is our life's vocation to collaborate with our creator in fulfilling the Christ potential in each of us. That sounds a lot like what scripture tells us, that human beings were created in the image of God. We are made to reflect God's love and creativity and his leadership back into the creation. We are made to imitate God's character. The best example we have of this of, of what God is like is in the person of Jesus, of course. And we observe Jesus in three main ways, three main ways. We observe what he did in the stories that we have from eyewitnesses. We observe how the apostles, how the early church was changed and transformed because of who Jesus was. And we observe Jesus through his teachings. You can learn a lot about a person by what they teach. And it's to his teaching that we turn this evening. And in fact, we have been looking at one of Jesus's most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, for the past several months. And the Sermon on the Mount is the good news that God has made a way for us to flourish, even after the mess that we've made of our personal lives and our world. And before God gives any command, before Jesus commands us to do anything or gives us any instructions in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he expresses God's grace toward us by declaring, blessed or flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then once he establishes that groundwork, that before we do anything, anything of great worth, we're invited to participate in his flourishing kingdom, Jesus then lays out a vision for what the flourishing life looks like for human beings. In Matthew 5, we're given six sections of teaching that all have the same general structure. That structure is, you have heard that it was said, part one, but I say to you, part two, and then the third part is a bold, often shocking example of the kind of attitude that Jesus is encouraging in us. So far, we've seen that the flourishing life involves reconciliation rather than stoking the embers of anger that build up inside of us. Flourishing are those who learn to see other people as made in God's image, not as commodities for our own pleasure. 
Flourishing are those who choose to remain faithful to their marriage vows. Flourishing are those who live with personal integrity. Flourishing are those who don't seek revenge and choose to overcome evil with love. And that leads us to the sixth teaching section of Matthew chapter 5, found in verses 43 through 48. And that's where we're going to focus right now. And it goes like this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you will be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, only your family, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? But you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I know you want to know what that means. <laughs> Before we get into like what the text means, let me just make an observation about the opening line. In every other teaching section in Matthew 5, Jesus quotes a portion of the Hebrew scriptures, and then he affirms it by revealing kind of the ethic behind that law or that statement. But in this section, we see something unique, something a little different. He starts by quoting scripture. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. That's right out of Leviticus 18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's makes, that means this is really important. Do it. But the second part, the part about hating your enemy, that's not in the scripture as a command. In fact, Exodus 23 tells us to do right by our enemies, and the teacher of Proverbs suggests that we treat our enemies with kindness. So, in fact, there's commands that are completely the opposite of hating uh, our enemies. So what is Jesus quoting when he says, you have heard that it was said to hate your enemy? Well, he's most likely quoting popular sayings from the day. After all, he's speaking to a group of people living under the oppressive Roman Empire, a group of people who have come to see themselves as God's people and the Romans as filthy pagans, and they are unrighteous and unclean. And it's easy in that scenario to develop a we're the good guys, they're the bad guys mentality. I don't know any other groups of people who do that, but it looks like that's what's going on here. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, might be talking about us. And Jesus confronts this divisive mentality by saying, not only should we love our neighbors, but we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Now, why? Why is that particular command a mark of a follower of Jesus? Why does loving enemies um, lead to human flourishing? Well, let me spend a moment on the why, and then we're going to get to the how. Everybody wants to know the how. Well, we've got to understand the why first. Um, the, the, the first reason why loving enemies leads to human flourishing is because hatred, hatred leads to human desolation, like the complete opposite of flourishing. When we hate and when we dehumanize other groups of people, we create systems of oppression. Just look at how much of the world's resources in 
in, in the current state of things, the current decade, look how much of the world's resources go toward building up massive arsenals of military equipment, supposedly to protect us from one another. You only need trillions of dollars of military equipment if you have enemies who are also doing the same thing. Scratch below the surface of many uh, uh, like terrorist groups, for example, and you're going to find deep anger and hatred over oppression and harm done by other political power groups. And you can see uh, this in systemic racism, not just in the United States of America, but all around the world. It's not just big, nameless social illnesses that result from harboring hatred and maintaining enemies. Hatred also kills us as individuals. When you harbor hatred towards someone, it slowly poisons your heart and calluses your soul so that it makes you a bitter person and you become a prisoner to your own hatred. So from a purely practical point of view, learning to love our enemies has positive social, big group, and personal individual fruitfulness, like it leads to flourishing. But another reason that Jesus calls us to love our enemies is because that's what he does, and we're made in his image. And this might be even more important. I started with the practical, because you're Americans and you want to know what's in it for me. But also, like just ontologically, like the nature of who you are, you are an image bearer of God. And the God in whose image we are made in loves his enemies. Jesus loves all sorts of people. He causes the sun to rise on the evil just like he does on the good. He sends the life-nourishing rains on the wicked and the righteous. Jesus died for you and me while we were yet sinners. That is, enemies of God. Jesus forgave his accusers and executioners. And God is faithful to his promise to work in and through human beings. He is so committed. I'd have given up a long time ago. Thankfully, I'm not God. He is so committed to working in and through human beings, even when we are not faithful, which is a most of the time. Jesus loves his enemies. Thanks be to God, because we would be in serious trouble if he didn't love his enemies. So if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and if you're just here today, and you're just like, I'm not so sure about this. I kind of wanted to check out what church is. It's a big ask. It's a big ask. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you have chosen a trajectory to become like him. Like that is... Just in case we missed the point by singing all these songs and talking about sermons and things like, like that is the point of what we're about is like becoming like Jesus. And if we're going to become like him, we have to face the fact that he loves his enemies. He calls us or he calls peacemakers his sons and daughters in verse nine of the same chapter. And here he says that those who love and pray for their enemies are his sons as well. And that's another way of saying that those who love and pray for their enemies reflect their father. They imitate God. Okay. Love your enemies. Let's talk about love for a minute. In English, we have one word for love. 
We need to come up with some better words for love. But we have one word for love, and it's filled with all sorts of connotations, all, all sorts of meanings that we pile onto this one word, L-O-V-E. Um, it, that, the range of meaning is vast. It, erotic passion, sentimental warm fuzzies, loyal love of a friend or a spouse. And it's hard to read Jesus' command in English and have any kind of clue what he actually means. Are we supposed to feel warm and fuzzy toward people who may have hurt us, who might have caused us you know, incredible harm, who might still be causing us incredible harm? Are we supposed to feel good about that? Well, no, not at all, in fact. In fact, Jesus, the Jesus we're called to imitate, got angry frequently about injustice, and yet he loves the people who do the injustice. Jesus will hold evil accountable, absolutely, but he'll always desire reconciliation and repentance and restoration. In Greek, there's at least four ways, and particularly in ancient and classical Greek, there's at least four ways to talk about love, and they're all verbs. And the first is storge, which, which is the kind of love that exists in a family. The love of maybe a parent for a child, if you can imagine that kind of love. Or the love that binds siblings together, if you can, you, you can picture that. That's not the word that Jesus uses in this passage. You can't command someone to storge their enemy. You can't command. Your enemy is not a family member. You can't command that. It's impossible. Another word for love is maybe one you're familiar with. It's eros. It's where we get the, the root for erotic. This is the love of beauty and romance. We might call it in American parlance, passionate love. Eros is about feelings and desire. And you know the thing about feelings and desire? You either feel them or you don't. Like you can't command eros. You cannot command someone to feel eros towards someone they don't feel eros for. That's not the word Jesus uses in this passage. A third ancient Greek word is philia, from where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is the, the word for loyal friendship, sometimes referred to as the highest form of love in the ancient world. It's loyalty and commitment to a trusted friend. And you simply cannot command someone to philia an enemy, because it would be disingenuous. It would be paradoxical to have loyal love commitment, the friendship type of commitment, towards someone who's evil and, and, and an enemy of you. And that's not the word that Jesus uses in this passage. It is the fourth. You, yes, get that man a prize. The fourth word that Jesus, the, the, the one that he uses in the passage is agape. And agape is a verb that describes, this is the key, a decision. Agape is a decision to do right by other people without expectation of reciprocation. Agape does not originate in our feelings or in some sort of shared loyalty commitment. As Daryl Johnson once said, agape is the will to do the will of goodwill toward others even when they don't deserve it. Like, it's that far removed. Like, it is the will to do the will of the goodwill for others when they don't deserve it. Agape is the word Jesus uses in this passage. 
And it is a word you can command someone to do because it is an act of the will. Agape does not require you to agree with your enemy or to trust your enemy or to feel warmly toward your enemy or to make believe that they're not bad or that they had a rough childhood and so it's okay. Agape does not ask us to be sweet or to put on a mask of West Coast niceness. East Coasters, you know what I'm talking about? I'm not even East Coast and I know what I'm talking about. Um, It's not the forgive and forget emotional gymnastics that some of us were taught in Western Christianity. Agape is a decision of the will to do right by those who don't deserve it because that is what Jesus does for us. So how, how do we do this? Because that is, that's hard. How are we to honestly live out our imitation of Jesus and learn to love our enemies? This is going to sound strange at first. But before we begin to walk this out, we have to actually have a a, a real enemy in mind. It doesn't work to do this kind of teaching at the level of theory. Of just like a, you know, this like, well, my hypothetical enemy, and then I'll work it out. That won't work. It doesn't work to think of mild examples like, well, this person cut me off in traffic the other day, or somebody was rude to me in line at the store. That's not an enemy. Who is your enemy? Who is it that actually has hurt you deeply and that you find difficult to be around, to talk with, to trust? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone really close to you. I know in the current climate, maybe it's a politician or a political group. Maybe it's a person that you are going to have contact with this very holiday season. You might have to share a table with them. Maybe one of your enemies is the person you see in the mirror on a daily basis. It's the inner critic, the broken self, the broken part of you that replays the inner dialogue and lies and says that you're unlovable and irredeemable and hopeless. That's a very real enemy for a lot of us. And for some of you, I just want to say this explicitly, some of you might even find a deep anger and resentment at God for events in your own life or events in the lives of people you love or for events in the world. And that's okay. You do not have a thought or an emotion that God is not already aware of. And he loves you. And in fact, part of worship is being honest, bringing our real self before the Lord. To quote Daryl Johnson again, Jesus is saying that we will not come to love our enemies unless we can first admit we hate them. That's not stuff you hear in church very often. He continues, we must acknowledge the fact that they hurt us. It is right to hate Because God hates. God hates evil. 
And for us to look past evil insults the holiness of God. We ought to be very angry at injustice and evil. So take a moment. Who is your enemy? For some of you, nothing will come to mind because you've been hurt and you've learned to stuff that part away. And that's okay. You might be sitting here right now thinking, I can't think of anyone. You can only be where you're at. And for some of you, something came to mind already when you saw the title of this sermon. (laughs) The wounds are raw and deep and the emotions are powerful for you. I want you, I want to encourage you now to hold that person or those people in your mind and to imagine their face. Because rather than just talking about Jesus' teaching in a typical sermon, I want to invite us to practice right here and now. Why not? What else are we going to do? As you imagine the face or the memory of the one who is your enemy, Feel the real tension of what Jesus is commanding us to do here. Are we supposed to love and to pray for this person or those people? I want to start with those of you who are finding it difficult to even conceive of praying for your enemy. And I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes. Your enemy is is there but they are at a safe distance away. They are not with you. And for those of you who are unable to bring yourself to even want to pray for them, start here. Pray, Jesus, have mercy on me. I want to be free from this hatred and pain. I know you forgave your enemies but you're you. You say I'm made in your image, but it is hard for me to see in myself. I don't feel it in my emotions. I don't live it in your body. Jesus, I want to want to be like you. By the power of your spirit, help me to pray for the well-being of my enemies. By the power of your spirit, show me if there is a way you're inviting me to show love, to show an act of blessing or an act of service. By the power of your spirit, heal me so that I might be free of this prison of trauma and anger and pain. For those of you who are holding your enemy in your imagination and you desire to try praying for them, I encourage you to try and avoid praying for what you think they need in your opinion to change into the person that you desire them to be. Instead, I I, I, I encourage you to just hold them before God in your imagination. Sometimes you can just hold them in your imagination before God without words. 
and imagine the presence of God radiating out and enveloping them. You are free from the outcome, but you are putting them before the lover of their souls and you are trusting that his best will be done. Maybe that exercise is too weird for you. Then consider holding them before God and simply asking that Jesus would make himself known to them. That he would touch their hearts. That Jesus would intervene in their lives like he did for Paul on the Damascus Road or for Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector. Pray that God might change their heart like the Ninevites in Jonah or Naaman the Syrian who enslaved the very people of God. You don't have to be able to imagine the redemption that is possible in order to pray that it is possible. And while we're at it, we can pray, Lord, change my heart. Free me from hatred. Heal me from the destructive grip of anger and the pain inflicted by this person or these people. Amen. In the last chapter, or last verse of chapter 5, we read, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the problem is that in modern English, the term perfect carries the idea of flawless, without error, without fault. But in the Greek, the word is actually teleos, which means mature, grown up, it points toward adulthood as opposed to childhood or adolescence. And it suggests a process. We are growing up in Christ to be like him. And it says it's a future perfect. I know this is grammar nerdy, but it, it has good news packed in there. So I need to say it. The words command, they say, you will be mature. You will be complete. You will be grown up as your heavenly father is mature, complete, grown up. And while we are not there yet, and it is no, it's no accident that this promise of future maturity is bookended by the, in the beginning of, G, uh, of Matthew 5, the first thing that Jesus says in Matthew 5 is flourishing are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last thing that he says in chapter 5 is you will be mature, complete, whole, like your father in heaven is mature and complete and whole. And I just want to leave you with that, that you are not called to be flawless in all of this stuff, that we are called to throw ourselves at the mercy and grace and the transforming power of Jesus. And that is very good news. Thank you, Jesus.